What's up, guys? Welcome to True Crime Queen. My name is Ginger. Listener discretion is advised. The dark nature of the show is not suitable for young ears or those sensitive to graphic material. But without further ado, let's go. So welcome back, everyone. This week, I have a bit of a different case today. I'm going to get away from all the nitty-gritty serial killers and rapists, and I'm going to shift it over to more of an important point in history. And this isn't a conspiracy episode, but it is a little bit of a controversial issue. I'm going to cover an intense standoff between an American family who's living in the remote mountains of Idaho near the Canadian border and the United States Marshals attempting to serve an arrest warrant on the father of the family. It was after a long, emotional-fueled 11 days that the standoff would end up taking the lives of three people and a dog along the way. This is the story of the Weaver family and what's known as Ruby Ridge. Before we get into this, I want to clarify that I was trying to make a very unbiased description of the timeline of events that occurred here, but as more information has come out, it's pretty obvious what really happened here. The events that took place have been disputed by both parties, and now people like you and me need to make our opinions based off the facts. I can tell that there are some people who see what happened to this family as fully justifiable, as well as the other side that thinks the government went way too far in the matter. I respect both opinions, obviously. We are all free to our own. But you might need to do a little more research on top of listening to my podcast before you make yours. So in the beginning, Randy Weaver is the father in our story today. And he grew up in a non-denominational, basically Christian, farm family in Iowa. He was your typical high schooler. He played football, baseball, that sort of thing. It's like work hard, play hard, pray hard, like be good, etc. He began college, but actually dropped to join the U.S. Army in 1968 at the age of 20. He would later end up serving as a Green Beret in the United States Special Forces. In 1971, he's honorably discharged from the Army, and he returned home to Iowa, where he gets married to a woman named Victoria that same year. And then he begins working at the John Deere factory while they start their family. It was said that, though, they didn't really claim any one religion specifically, Victoria, or Vicky as she would like to go by, was pretty religious. Religious enough to believe that the end times were upon them and they would be safer in the mountains far, far away from economic downfall or the threat of unemployment. They wanted to live off the land, homeschool their children, and live life as true Christian Americans should, or at least that's what they believed. So in 1983, her and Randy would begin slowly selling their items and heading far from the evils of society. They were essentially hoping to go off the grid and be, like, self-reliant. They basically doomsday prep, but for the long term. They find a very isolated piece of property in the mountains near the Canadian border, and I'm talking about the very tippity top of the Idaho Panhandle. It's about 50 miles from the Canadian border. The Weaver family was said to have traded their moving truck along with, like, five grand straight cash across for this 20-acre plot of land on top of a mountain. There, Randy and Vicky construct a cabin for their family to live in using their bare hands from locally donated wood. For years, they'll live there without electricity, running water, just living off the land like straight little house on the prairie style. I watched a documentary on Netflix by PBS 
And PBS does, like, the really awesome ones, if you didn't know. But in this documentary, Randy Weaver's oldest daughter, Sarah, who was 16 at this time, would recall how they would have to haul pails of water back and forth from the well just to wash the dishes and their clothes using one of the washboards. They would garden, they would pick berries and sell them. They were homeschooled by their mom and all four children, three girls and a boy, grew up super close together because they're always playing outside on their property with their dogs. They're learning every day about life without Wi-Fi, televisions, Netflix. You catch my drift? This was only the 70s and 80s. It wasn't like they couldn't have this stuff. They chose not to have this stuff, and it was God's way of life in their eyes. Apparently, though, some of Weaver's neighbors didn't think so highly of Randy. It was after a civil court matter over some property that a neighbor had filed a report to their county death how Randy is always out shooting off his gun. And apparently he was also ranting about how he would shoot the president, who was Ronald Reagan at the time, or the state's governor, which actually ended in Randy receiving a nice little visit from the Secret Service, apparently. He denies everything and says his neighbor is just trying to get him in trouble. But can you imagine how much work the Secret Service would have these days if they had to interview every single overly opinionated neighbor? I mean, I get that at the time, there are serious threats, but it was probably just like Randy talking a bunch of shit, you know? You know the type. You can probably think of a few people right now that would that have probably said they would shoot someone in the government if they had the chance. I'm not saying that's, like, right or okay, but it's just not as serious as it sounded back in the day, I guess. I mean, people talk so negatively about the president these days, I can't imagine how much work they might actually have if they had to investigate every single one of them. You know what I mean? Also, it's Idaho, and most people are comfortable with guns. Probably even owning some, especially if you have 20 acres. I don't know why someone would get upset about you shooting on yours, unless it was like at all hours of the night or something. But that was not what the neighbor's complaint was, from what I understand. So it could also be because the Weaver family had apparently been making some new friends, and the type that aren't very tolerant of other races outside their own and so this next part is going to be hard for some listeners to not become prejudiced but I implore you to remain open-minded for the time being because I will come back to it when necessary okay so living in this manner off the grid and so far away from the city lights the Weaver family begins socializing with a group of people every so often they're located not too far from their property and this would actually be a Aryan nations compound And if you don't know what that is, it's a rather large, scary group of people that think Hitler had it right. This particular compound I am speaking about isn't too far from where I am now, and unfortunately, the area itself does have a bit of a nasty history of white supremacy and the neo-Nazi followers over there. However, Randy and his family aren't necessarily openly racist or anything, They're welcomed by the compound for their views on separation from the government, but they actually declined joining the Aryan nations officially and just continued to socialize with them and some of the other families that did happen to be in the organization. In the documentary, Sarah Weaver, his daughter, says it's more like summer camping trips and barbecues that they went to and not like rallies or that type of thing. So take it how you want it, but truly, it's it's hard to find true, real evidence that this family was, like, wearing white hoods behind closed doors or anything, but just that they were, but just that they didn't want to be affected by the economical or the societal pressures that modern times bring forth, I suppose. 
They were religious as well, so it's very possible that the family did have some underlying Christian ideology that also tie into the bullshit superiority thing that neo-Nazis do like to push. But after looking into the case, I would not say that this family was openly racist, like I said. More so anti-government than anything. But since the late 80s, the Aryan nations had actually been under surveillance by the U.S. intelligence for their connection to a subgroup of extremists that were believed to be committing a string of robberies, bombings, and even a couple high-profile murders. The family is obviously not aware of this, but in 1986, when the Weaver family's mere presence and association with the Aryan Nations group has put them again on government's radar. At some point, Randy ends up getting friendly with what happened to be a undercover ATF informant with the alias of Gus Magasono. And he infiltrated the Aryan compound a few years prior to the Weavers being in Idaho, and over three years' time had become good friends with Randy. It's pretty common knowledge within the group that Randy and his family live off the land. So in October of 1989, somehow this ATF agent Gus convinces Randy to make some money by selling him two shortened shotguns. So two weeks later, Randy would sell those two shotguns to Gus, and remember he's an undercover ATF agent, However, they were technically illegally sold and shortened below the legal length for this particular type of shotgun. Apparently, augmenting a shotgun like this one is okay as long as you keep it within a legally stated length. Later in court, it would be disputed as to which person, either Gus or Randy, would propose the length at which it was cut. Randy says he cut them exactly where Gus had told them he wanted to be cut, to which Gus denies ever proposing or requesting. Either way, it seems kind of dumb to me that they make a bigger deal out of the length of the shotgun barrels than the actual private sale of the shotgun, but I guess that's the technical charge they're going for. In June of 1990, after the transfer of the sawed-off shotguns, ATF would confront Randy about the guns and his ties to the Aryan compound, then press him to also become an informant for the ATF. If he complies and successfully helps them set up some sort of meeting with a bigger criminal in the organization that they're after, his shotgun charges will totally be dropped. Well, Randy doesn't like the government very much, and he allegedly told the ATF to go to hell. And then he went home, and he told his wife, Vicki, where she, I guess, turned around and hand-wrote a letter informing the Aryan nations and, quote, all our brethren of the Anglo-Saxon race about how the ATF is looking for snitches, as she put it. The very next day, a warrant was issued for Randy Weaver's arrest, and the informant had been outed to the compound. I'm not sure why they didn't just walk up to his property and announce their arrival, but apparently authorities thought there would be less resistance from Weaver if they surprise arrested him. How fun. Not. Their daughter actually describes the event when her father is arrested by authorities under the ruse a broken-down couple on the side of the road near their property were stranded. His neighbors apparently would radio to this couple when Randy and his family were heading down from his property. And when Randy got out of his vehicle to help the seemingly in need couple, his daughter Sarah says the man then threw her dad into the snow right there on the side of the road and officially arrested him for those prior shotgun charges, just like they threatened. Pretty dick move, I would say. I am, I'm understanding of the fact that he's not privy to law enforcement, I guess, but tricking them and arresting them at gunpoint is probably your best bet at furthering that, like, distaste, I would think. 
I believe they would argue that a surprise arrest is safer for everyone, though, which I guess I can't argue with. But I wonder what would have happened if they just simply knocked on his door like thousands of other criminals that law enforcement has to confront on the daily. It's not that crazy. So the next day after his arrest, he pleads not guilty and he plans to fight the charges as he believes it's just a pure case of entrapment, as he says he only cut those shotguns where the undercover informant asked him to. He's released on a $10,000 bond when he signs over his property as collateral while he's free to go while he awaits for his day in court, which was apparently set for four weeks later on February 19th. Randy Weaver then received a letter saying his court date was actually changed to March 20th, which was a misprint. It was actually moved a day later to February 20th, and he ended up missing it because of this error. So when he didn't show up for court on the March 20th date either, authorities transferred his case over to the U.S. Marshal Service for an arrest in regards to failing to appear in court for the original shotgun charges. So at this point, Randy's pretty freaked out that he's going to lose his property. He's been warned that they're going to take his kids away. His wife is going to be left homeless. From my research, it was said many times that Randy had no intentions of actually coming to court, regardless of the court date mistakes. He felt that the whole situation was a complete smear campaign, as he put it. They set him up, they're charging him, they're sneaking around. His neighbor started everything with all his complaints. They're messing with the dates. He's just done with them. His wife was done too. She had continued writing letters to the state of Idaho leaders using some biblical terminology, but basically saying like, we aren't fucking with you no mo. No, but really she wrote it as, we will not bow to your evil commandments, whether we live or whether we die. And I believe the government was then forced to, they would most likely be met with resistance if they attempted to arrest him at his home. And he obviously wasn't going to just walk down to the sheriff's office at this point, or at least they didn't think he would. So Randy and his family would actually remain in their cabin for over 18 months from that first 1991 January arrest and release all the way to August of 1992. They would only leave the cabin to go hunting for food and friends would occasionally stop by and check on them or bring them necessary supplies. It was in that period of time that Vicky and Randy would have their fourth child, a baby girl, and it was also said that Vicky actually gave birth in a shed on their property because her religious beliefs viewed the act of giving birth as unclean and shouldn't be done in the home. So this badass bitch gave birth in a fucking shed without medicine, electricity, running water in fucking January near the Canadian border, y'all. If that isn't pure dedication to your beliefs, I cannot tell you what is. As the media would learn about how some crazy separatist man in the mountains wasn't obeying the law, a stereotype would sort of begin with the Weaver family to those reading the headlines regarding the ongoing disputes. His connection to the Aryan nations has brought a racist theme. His separatist beliefs add to his gun hoarding rumor, and his religious wife was viewed much like how Idaho's Lori Daybell is viewed today. She's another doomsday type who refuses to tell us what she's done with her children. It's in a crazy episode I covered if you haven't listened to it yet. The assumption was that Vicki Weaver would rather kill her own children than surrender to authorities, but I honestly think that those claims were very exaggerated. It's not easy to raise four kids today, let alone on a mountain without electricity. I highly doubt that she would ever hurt her own children. There's no evidence that this entire family has ever even hurt a fly, to be honest. Sure, they're a little difficult to deal with, but they aren't exactly terrorists. It turns out that later during a trial, a prosecuting witness that describes Vicky's attitude in regards to her own children 
was that one of her biggest fears was that the government would take the children away from them and put them in the foster system. And it ended up being actually more helpful to the defense's side because their intent was to actually convince the jury that Vicky might actually hurt her own children if necessary, which was really just reachy after the testimony was heard. So when the case was handed over to the marshals to arrest Randy Weaver, the marshals got the impression that Weaver and his family were very far right, they're heavily armed, and they're willing to throw down if necessary. So they're bringing in the big guns, and that's appropriate. Weaver, also being a former Green Beret, would also give the impression that he's not one to fuck with, so marshals believe that they're also better off arresting him in a secret ambush rather than just walking up there and asking him to cooperate. One of the agents is actually interviewed on the PBS documentary available on Netflix, and he said that when they went and asked Randy's friends and neighbors, they told him that walking up and trying to arrest him like a normal guy was the absolute worst thing they could ever do, so that's really why they took the undercover route. They had even at one point installed motion-activated security cameras to watch the Weaver family when they worked outside their cabin. They would see how the adults, at least, would always be armed, but Sarah would explain that they were very respectful with firearms and they were simply just tools for their protection and for hunting. And it makes sense to me because they do live in cougar and bear country. I read that the marshals had noted in this particular case it would be harder for them considering the presence of multiple children in the area, and they even thought that Randy was strategically having his children walk in front of him when greeting guests to the property and the reason being that he was shielding his own body from potential snipers. I personally think that they were reading into the whole thing a little too hard. I mean, I can envision these children gladly running down the road to greet any visitors since they live in such isolation. But I suppose if I did see Randy as a possible threat, I might make the same assumption about the children. Sarah just doesn't seem like she was raised with that extreme of parents, though. And frankly, you can find a lot of interviews that she has done where she seems like a very respectful and reasonable person, and that she was raised by such. So during what was strictly supposed to be a day of scouting and surveying quickly turns deadly when a team of six marshals split paths while walking through the area around the Weaver family cabin. The Weaver dogs had actually began alerting and barking like they do when someone arrives. Randy, their 24-year-old family friend named Kevin Harris, and their 13-year-old son, Sammy Weaver, go check on whatever might be alerting the dog. I want to remind everyone again that this is bear country, so you do not go walking in the woods, even on your own property, without packing some kind of weapon, just in case there's a predator near. And I mean, for all they knew, that could have been why the dog was barking in the first place. Any hooser, Randy goes down one trail, while Sam and Kevin take another. And you need to imagine, like, four parties of people in all close proximity on very heavily wooded property. When shots start ringing out, Vicky and her two grown daughters, as well as a 10-month-old baby, are waiting back at the cabin, and they are definitely aware of the gunshots going off. This exchange of gunfire has been super controversial when it comes to the U.S. government versus the Weaver family. The U.S. Marshals claim that while they were on the property, their cover was blown when the family dogs led Samuel Weaver and Kevin Harris to the location of three of the U.S. Marshals, who immediately gave orders to the boys to cease and surrender when 24-year-old Kevin actually decides to open fire on marshals, actually striking and killing a deputy, Bill Deegan. A few seconds later, another marshal shoots the Weaver family dog, and he says it's in an effort to conceal his hiding spot. 
Marshalls claim that they're unaware that a 13-year-old Samuel Weaver was ever shot and killed during this incident until FBI agents have discovered his body in the family shed a few days later. That's the official story per the U.S. Marshals. Kevin Harris, who was there, that when they went to investigate the dog's barking, they were unknowingly in the vicinity of the Marshals, who were dressed in camouflage and did not make their presence known with surrender orders like they claimed. Samuel witnessed someone dressed in camo shoot his dog as it gave away his hiding spot, and that's when Sam, the 13-year-old, got upset and started yelling, You shot my dog, you son of a bitch. And he starts shooting at the unknown agent, who was then returning fire. Kevin Harris, to the defense of Sam Weaver, then shot Deputy Bill Deegan in the chest. Kevin does not know which marshal shot and killed Sam, and also was not aware that these men were U.S. Marshals. Randy had even ran into the other group of marshals that were on the property, and he says that when walking on the trail with his gun, a man popped out from behind a stump or a rock or something, saying, freeze, Weaver, while drawing his weapon. Randy admits that he waved the man off as no threat or authority for that matter and continued walking in the other direction towards the gunfight that had just begun. Randy Weaver admits in a YouTube interview done just two years ago, actually, that if he wanted to, he could have easily shot that marshal who confronted him because he was in fact armed, but had no real interest in ever shooting anyone, not even the trespassing marshals. I'll link that uh, videotaped interview in the episode sources if anyone's interested in seeing how Randy Weaver is doing these days. Back in 1992, though, at this point, Randy and Kevin have to return to the cabin and unfortunately relay the tragic news to Vicki that their only son has been shot and killed in the earlier shootout. The family is understandably upset, but Vicki doesn't want to just leave little Sam's body out there, so she has Randy and Kevin go back and get him so that they can properly lay him to rest. So as Father Randy and Kevin attempt to leave the cabin and retrieve Sam's body per the request of Vicky, they manage to safely place his body in the same shed that Vicky had given birth to his baby sister just 10 months prior. After the shootout, the marshals retreated back to their base as well, where an obviously shaken lead deputy has to report that an officer has been shot and killed during their scouting, and they're going to need heavy backup to their location to deal with this family. On August 22nd of 1992, the day after Sammy Weaver was shot and killed, a FBI sniper team had arrived and posted up hundreds of yards outside the cabin, just watching and waiting for the right moment to pick off these crazy Marshall-killing neo-Nazis. The sniper orders were specifically can and should use deadly force upon any armed adult on the premises. They felt as though a warning had already been announced when the initial deputies ordered Sam and Kevin to surrender the day before the shooting. But remember, we only have the marshal's word that ever happened. So these snipers are free to shoot any armed adult on site without warning, and they take their first shot when they see Randy outside the cabin near the shed that Sam's body is in. When the grieving family had woken up the next morning, if they had even slept at all, decided to go out and say one last goodbye to Sam. They did not know that snipers were outside of their home. Randy and his oldest daughter, Sarah, and friend Kevin Harris all exit the cabin and head down the porch stairs towards the birthing shed. Randy reaches for the shed door when he then shot without warning through his back and out of his armpit. His wife, Vicky, runs out onto the porch and she's holding their 10-month-old child. She's inquiring about the shot she just heard. Randy replies that he's been shot while making his way back up to the porch. Sarah, who's 16 at the time, describes her mother standing in the doorway holding it open while distraughtly yelling at them to all get back inside the cabin. Sarah enters, Randy enters, and then Kevin dives through the doorway, 
The second shot is fired at Kevin Harris while he is entering their cabin. Vicky is standing behind the door holding their 10-month-old baby girl. Their two other daughters are beside her. When the shot meant for Kevin bursts through the door, through Vicky's head, and resting into Kevin's arm. Vicky falls to the floor with the baby, and the sniper testifies later in court that he heard the screams coming from the cabin for a whole 30 seconds after he made that shot, but claims to be totally unaware that Vicky was shot and killed, and that he missed the shot. By this time, personal friends and neighbors of the Weavers had learned the situation going up on their property and began protesting the government's actions. It also somewhat became a political opportunity for the neo-Nazi and other anti-government groups in the area to come out and express their beliefs and protest the government's involvement there. For three days following these sniper attempts, the commanders in charge would continue trying to communicate with Randy and even Vicky via bullhorn. They would start in the mornings by calling out to Vicky, hoping she was more of the reasonable of the two, to come out with the children and enjoy some pancakes that the officers had made for breakfast. Inside the cabin, the family said that they were feeling hunted and mocked when they would hear them call out to the dead mom, who had been laying on their living room floor covered with a sheet, while Kevin Harris was begging to be put out of his misery from the pain inflicted on his gunshot wound. About the third or fourth day into the standoff, a couple officers attempting to deliver a phone made the discovery of Sam's body in the shed, and it was then made public that the child was shot during the incident a few days prior. Adding more fuel to the fire below near the base, where the protesters and now additional angry civilians were livid at how far the situation had gotten out of hand. A popular radio broadcast was delivered specifically to Randy Weaver, hoping he was listening to the airwave, since he didn't have a TV or even a telephone to communicate any other way than simply yelling orders at the cabin. The radio broadcast read to Randy that a mobile telephone has been delivered to the porch, and all he needed to do was open up the door and pick it up which obviously at this point they're terrified of going outside or even opening the door. The radio broadcast also informed Randy that the local reporter was willing to pay for the best possible legal defense for Weaver upon his surrender, but all the attempts to communicate would completely go unanswered until a rather semi-famous friend gave it a shot. The FBI's hostage rescue team agreed to let a man named Bo Greitz attempt to communicate via third party since they weren't getting anywhere with Randy Weaver themselves. He was a former Green Beret who had actually served with Randy previously. He was also known for his very right-wing political views and also happened to be running a presidential candidate at the time. So now it's eight days into the standoff and Bo Greitz walks right up to the cabin and yells at them to look out their window. He sees Randy and he tells them that he's there to help. He understands the miscommunication and also is aware that Kevin Harris probably needs medical attention for the shots that he incurred the week before. Kevin and Randy are resistant, but when Bo explains that he himself will have to take action against Randy if Kevin ends up dying from his injuries because they're refusing to cooperate. That's when Kevin finally surrenders and walks back down to the base with Bo. He's transported to the hospital and he ends up making a full recovery. Bo also returns down from the cabin with the tragic news that Vicky was unfortunately dead as well and was actually shot in the head during the sniper's efforts to take out Kevin. He's all, you really fucked up this one, man. Not only have you shot this man's son, his dog, but now his wife and the mother of their four children was also shot and killed. The media has yet to be made aware of this specific death. And you have to listen to how the top FBI guy calling all the shots and speaking with the media delivers this obviously shocking news to reporters standing nearby. The three ch children are 
in good health. Kevin is all right, but he did suffer a wound. Randy's in good health. Unfortunately, Vicky is dead. Did you hear those gasps? Yeah, those people are about to go apeshit. And I also hate the fact that he starts off rather chipper about the situation and then has to quickly and sort of vaguely mention, like, their fuck up with Vicky. Like, we shot the mom. Sorry. Okay, good work, everyone. Bye. I was cursing at my television screen so loud when I heard that for the first time. I just couldn't believe how he chose to deliver that information. The next day, on August 31st of 1992, Bogue would return to the cabin with a body bag for Vicki Weaver and talk with Randy about their next moves. When he arrives, he's told by Randy and his surviving daughters that they will not be coming down from the cabin. They're going to have to shoot them like they did their baby brother and their mama. Apparently, that's when Bo gets all military brosif and says, don't tell me that shit when I just bagged up and carried your bride down that hill. And then he also reminded Randy that he had access to one of the best legal defenses around, and he would surely get the whole thing straightened out. Randy then told his daughters to grab their things as they were going to leave with Bo. Sarah said she fully expected to be shot as soon as she went into the sunlight, which she had made peace with if that was to be the end of it all. When she wasn't shot, she was taken down the mountain with what's left of her family, and she sees quite literally what looks like a pop-up army base at the foot of their mountain. She had no idea how much military presence was there just all for her dad. Kevin and Randy would be arrested and charged with a slew of crimes, including first-degree murder of the deputy that was shot in the mountain, as well as Randy's original gun and failure-to-appear charges. Randy's daughters were sent to live in Iowa with their grandparents while waiting for their father's legal battles to end. They had to transition from the rugged country living to life in the city again, all without either one of their parents or their little brother at the time. The trial would start in October of 1992, and the deliberations were said to be the longest ever in Idaho history. It was also quite the show because Randy Weaver had secured the services of one of the very top attorneys at the time. He's legit one of the lawyers that TV shows and movies depict their characters on. He's thoughtful, witty, and also considered one of the best of the best, and at one point in the trial, the sniper who had shot Vicky had been on the stand, and he was explaining that he was unaware that these people were behind the door when he would lose credibility the next day when a poorly drawn sketch was discovered with two heads behind a window pane that had been drawn by the same sniper just a day after he testified, completely contradicting the earlier statements that he did not know people were behind that window. In the end, Kevin Harris was fully acquitted of all the charges brought against him in 92 and even went back against them in his own civil suit in the year 2000, receiving over 300000 in damages. Randy Weaver would also be acquitted of all his new charges, leaving the original charges regarding the shotguns and the failure to appear. He would get time served as well, so it meant just a few months more and he would then be able to go back to Iowa with his daughter's Weaver would also return in 1993 with his own lawsuit against the U.S. government for the wrongful deaths of his wife and son. Two years later, they would award each Weaver daughter $1 million and $100,000 for Randy Weaver specifically. It has come out in the years since that a few people in the FBI did lose their positions, and one person did end up spending a considerable amount of time in jail when it came to the situation at Ruby Ridge. Boundary County, Idaho, prosecutors, the county in which all this happened, 
would also attempt to sue the man who pulled the trigger on the shot that killed Vicki Weaver, the same one who fumbled up in court. In 2001, though, that lawsuit would actually be dismissed originally because they believed the sniper was legally acting within his own professional capacity and only following the orders he was given. Though the Ninth Circuit of Appeals would disagree and reverse the case dismissal, allowing the Idaho County to continue their manslaughter charges against the sniper. Two weeks later, though, after the reversal, the case would again get dropped, and this time for good. The new prosecuting attorney wasn't interested in pursuing charges against the sniper who shot Vicky in her home. The truth is that the incident that happened up at Rupee Ridge was, was something that would transition into a situation the FBI now considers a how-not-to-guide when it comes to these types of issues. Ruby Ridge would just be a small taste of what was to occur in a string of ever-intensifying incidents like the siege in Waco, Texas just a year later, a little farther down the road towards the Oklahoma City bombings, actually. Lots of people would like to say that what happened at Ruby Ridge contributed to the actions and beliefs of the cult leader David Koresh or the Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McBay. They took what happened in Ruby Ridge and exploited Randy Weaver as a victim in a situation to defend their own actions for their troubles with the law. I would believe it's safe to say that Randy and his family in reality weren't hurting anyone and shouldn't be dragged into McVeigh's anti-government bullshit. Obviously, one thing I think we need to learn from this is not to judge a book by its cover. It should go without saying. I would like to be clear that even though I really hate to be sympathetic to anyone who's associated with the likes of the Aryan Nations... I do believe that Randy Weaver's punishment did not fit his crime. Despite the notion that he might have been racist, I don't believe sniping him on his own property was proportionate to the real level of threat he might have posed. It seems as though stereotypes and egos of both Randy Weaver and the FBI agents that day just led to a completely unnecessary series of events. The best thing now is to use what we have learned from these mistakes to reconsider how we can do better now more than ever maybe, because we're questioning how much force is appropriate and for what types of criminals. Because, I mean, we witness both civilians and cops getting shot every single day, it seems. You think we'd have it figured out by now. Sometimes, I don't think Vicki Weaver had the wrong idea, though, living far away from the sirens and the negativity of the daily news with all the weirdos and the threats these days. It doesn't seem so crazy anymore to me. But to hell with giving birth in a shed, my dudes, because that shit is savage, and I applaud any woman who has ever had to do that. I mean, jeez and crackers. I hope you enjoyed your little history lesson today. It's, it's one of those times in history that we can go back and look at where we messed up and how we can do better. And instead of fighting about who did what, I think it's more important to reevaluate how we go about working in tougher situations. I'm also going to link a YouTube video that shows one of the U.S. Marshals that was there that day and his description of the events. I think it's only fair to share both sides, but like I said in the beginning, it's very important that if you want to make your own opinion about this tragedy, in my opinion, please don't just listen to my podcast. It's obviously biased. I, I tried and I couldn't. Do your own research make your own opinion, apply it. But I think the most important lesson of the day is to maybe not piss off your neighbors. So that's what I got for you. I hope you enjoyed my rendition of this story, and if so, please tell all your creepy friends about it. 
You can find the sources I used for the episode in its description. You can follow my Instagram account at truecrimequeen for some laughs if you need a little pick-me-up after all that dark shit. Feel free to leave an honest review on iTunes, or maybe even consider clicking the link in the description to make a small donation to my equipment fund so I can keep making you guys some killer-ass content. See what I did there? I know. Right, bye!